0: Welcome to the tactile world. This is a series where we are talking with people in various different types of care industry uh, occupations. People who do care work and talking about what care even really is in the contemporary sort of post-industrial economy that we live in in the United States and many parts of the world. We're talking with people who um, do this kind of work, like nurses, therapists, teachers, social workers, and so forth, but we're really thinking about it in broad terms. So today we have um, just, in my opinion, an amazing discussion with uh, a a man named Scott Clark, who has been on kind of a long trip. Scott is from Iowa. He served in the military. He was a pharmacy tech at the University of Iowa's medical sort of system um, at the time that COVID was ramping up, and also at the same time, the efforts at vaccine development were ramping up. We see here a real, very firsthand account of what it was like in the dark early days to be on the front line, to be viscerally experiencing what it is to... Uh, face this, this, this um, incomprehensible foe, this, this looming darkness. Uh, Scott has experienced that, and we're going to talk about like wh- how he got from uh, where he started to where he's ended up, um, and just, you know, it, it begins in Iowa, ends in Iowa. I would say about Scott that um, he served in the Navy after 9-11. Uh, he joined the Navy after 9-11 because of that. Now you could maybe say also like maybe as a young man, he didn't really know exactly what he wanted to do with his life. So maybe it served that kind of purpose as well. But he is one of the people who responded to this catastrophic event of these terrorist attacks by saying, I want to help. I want to serve my country. I want to take care of this nation. I want to go out and do something that's not easy that's not profitable, that's not uh, gonna get you a great nest egg, um, that's not easy or comfortable because he felt like this is what is the right thing to do in the time of need. This is, this is a type of care in its own way, and I think that maybe we don't necessarily always think about that, but he cared enough to do this and to pursue that path. Where he went from that path is, is, is a kind of winding road But that's just part of the story, and that's why it's so interesting. So um, it will bring him to the the front doorstep of COVID, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So I'm so excited that we can talk with Scott Clark about the story, and here we go.
1: in my hometown uh, or in the public school there, but the, the uh, population has changed. There are still a number of, of, of folks who are Hispanic who, who work at the uh, at the Tyson plant, too. They, you know, there's, um, there's a real backlash to that. I mean, we have a, <laughs> a serious racism problem in, in Iowa. And it was that way when I was a kid, um, and it, I, it hasn't gotten better, <laughs> I don't think, <laughs> um, yeah. and so, yeah, I mean, most, most Iowa towns that aren't meatpacking towns are majority white, I mean, overwhelmingly majority white. I went to the University of Iowa and, um, completed my, uh, I went to study pharmacy, um, the University of Iowa has a, a, pretty well-regarded pharmacy program, and so I went in through the, it's a graduate program, so I, my, I started as a college, uh, <coughs> college of liberal, liberal arts student, and, um, did my pre-pharmacy year, applied for the graduate school, took my pharmacy college admission test, the PCAT, and I got in, and I did a year, and then I dropped uh, out for a variety of reasons. Um, there was a few years in between where I was sort of kind of drifting and um, not quite sure what to do with myself. So I ended up, um, I moved to uh, Seattle and I joined the Navy there after 9-11. Um,
0: was, was 9-11 a, a, a motivating factor for you wanting to join the U.S. military?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's see. That was the reason. Uh, my, my, my family is a Navy family.
0: How do you feel about the how do you feel about the war on terror that followed um, broadly speaking I mean um, mo- most Americans didn't enroll in the military didn't enlist didn't serve um, but a, a, a handful of a relatively small group of people such as yourself uh, responded to that event by saying I want to like serve my country like so I mean how do you how do you feel about the whole war on terror uh, looking back now? Uh,
1: well, looking back now, it's a, um, it's a nightmare. Uh, I like to say I, I, I wish everyone could have six months of military experience that doesn't involve any is effective
0: Were you, were you deployed in the Middle East? served your you know, period of enlistment and then you decided that you didn't want to re-enlist or stay in the military? Right, yeah. What, what, um, what, what motivated that decision? <laughs> uh, <laughs>
1: well, I, was, I really did not want to go to y- Yakuzka. The military sometimes does this thing where if they want you and they need you to do something, they start trying to give you money as your enlistment comes up, and I was kind of waiting for them to do that, or give me the option of switching over to a smaller ship, and you know, it's not stationed in Japan, and uh, that never came up, so I just, my day came up, and uh, I got out. And uh, yeah, it, it was a relief, and a like a guilt thing at the same time, you know.
0: I feel like you, I feel like you've expressed that, um, in a lot of ways, like a feeling of guilt about like leaving a group of people. Um, in this case, your you know, uh, fellow service members and maybe later uh, in the hospital, I think that would be something maybe we could talk about, but what happened when you, uh, when your enlistment ended?
1: Okay. So my enlistment ended in 2006. Um, I stayed in Virginia for about six months after that, in the very uh, Norview, Virginia, which is a, a, uh, a very poor, um, very black, suburb is not the right term, neighborhood of Norfolk, Virginia. And I was trying to get into the Merchant Marines to become a Merchant Marine. And I was also seeing a girl who was also about to get out of the Navy. So I was kind of waiting on her to get out and uh, see where that was going to go. And that didn't go anywhere. So, um, so then I moved back here to Iowa uh, for for a couple of years. I did not want to sign anything long term. So I was... Uh, I. I I stayed in a shelter um, for about a year. I worked in factories um, in the Quad Cities area, which is Davenport and uh, Bettendorf on the Iowa side. Kind of in between Des Moines and Chicago on the Mississippi River is these four cities they call the Quad Cities. I stayed in a mission there. And I was dealing with a lot of uh, like I said, a lot of Yelped about not being with my shipmates. Also, just, you know, I'm 28 and all my friends are now married or having children or in, you know, in a career. And um, yeah, so uh, um, it was kind of just tumultuous time. And then, so I wandered around a lot and then I I would visit people in um, different states who had gotten out. So I went to Florida for a few months to hang out with a guy who got out. I ended up in Chico, California eventually. And I lived there for five or six years. So, I mean, I, I still had this, like, strong belief in in service. So I was in um, this mission. It's technically a non-denominational mission, Um, but it's Christian because it's Iowa, everybody's white, you know, but there are different kinds of Christians there. And um, one, one, uh, a friend of mine was uh, one of the people who worked there. He was in seminary, and he introduced me to... um, catholic workers and um the catholic worker houses and he he actually has started one in davenport now but he was trying to get one started and i kind of i didn't know i really 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 hate the weather here and i wanted to be somewhere warmer so um I went to California instead but my idea was I had made this switch from, from being in the military to because in the military you you can't do good, you just do whatever they tell you, anything you do beyond that is bad and you'll be punished for it and it won't help anybody. Um, so my thought was I, I just, I, I want to do good for people in an organization. Um, so the, the Catholic workers seemed like something that I could do um, that that would help people. Um, I ended up in Chico because there's like a a halfway house for veterans there, and somebody told me they had to low one of the most beautiful waterfalls with this. With, was within walking distance I was supposed to go to sheep ranch Catholic working farm which is southern California in the middle of nowhere and uh rather than get on the bus and go out there I uh I went to Chico instead. said stayed at the BA halfway house which was probably a better decision because the sheep ranch farm was for um people in um, hospice care for um, HIV and AIDS. And it was like a retreat place that they could go. And I thought, um, I wasn't gonna be helpful there, I don't think, I don't think I could've. I think think it's the fear of failing at it. Like it seemed like the consequences were too large.
0: Can I, can, so, I, can, I, can I go back to the Catholic worker thing? Um, sure. I mean, I think I love the Catholic worker movement. I mean, I, that's one of the things I think is just really wonderful. Um, I'm not yeah. Catholic. I'm not Catholic myself, but I have a great deal of uh, admiration and respect for the people who do that kind of work. And so how did, how did that uh, affect you? How did that uh, change your way of thinking or your behavior or I don't know?
1: Well, okay, so the way I became friends with Mike is uh, he... Mike is the guy who was in seminary. Um, he had finished seminary, uh, but he hadn't... He could So he wouldn't take his vows because he's gay, and he can't take a vow of obedience to not be gay. And it was like a political stance, like obviously he could make the fake vow or whatever, but there's the things that he actually believes in. Um, no, but anyway, we talked endlessly about um, pacifism and activism and how do you actually affect change in the world. And you know, and he introduced me to um, um, the woman who started the Catholic work, Dorothy, uh, Dorothy Day.
0: Dorothy Day,
1: yeah. <laughs> I always forget her name. Um, that turned me around from this idea of This kind of militaristic—I don't know—sort of classic idea that at some point you got to punch somebody in the face or whatever. (laughs) Um, To no, actually, you don't. You just, you know, you can do a lot of good if you just sort of, you know, follow that path of things.
0: What kind of? I mean, did that did that guide you and what you decided to do afterwards? Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to go to, I was going to go to Sheep Ranch and I didn't. And that was bad.
1: Well, not bad, but uh, it made me feel bad about myself. And I went instead and I stayed in this place in in, um, uh, Chico for veterans without homes or whatever. Um, I got involved in the uh, homeless community there. And then I met a woman who was running an organic um, farm and uh, she had a uh, camper in her backyard and uh, she said I could stay there and work on the farm and, you know, maybe get some money or whatever from selling produce or whatever, but it was like free room and board. I was trying to do a lot of um, healing of a lot of things at this time too. So it was just like good manual labor and
0: felt like I was doing something. that was good. So wh- how did you end up leaving there? Where, where did you go afterwards? <laughs> I was, my grandparents had a
1: uh, 60th wedding anniversary.
0: Oh,
1: And so they wanted everyone to fly back to Iowa to um, so they could get pictures and stuff and they had a celebration and stuff so I did that and I stayed in Iowa City here um, and met my uh, wife who I knew before (laughs) from college we reconnected um, over that weekend because we all had the same friends anyway and then we just, like, we're communicating back and forth and stuff, and then psh, we got married and
0: moved here. And where are you right now?
1: Now uh, we live in Iowa City.
0: So, um, maybe you can tell us about how you came to work at the University of Iowa.
1: Uh, well, so when I was a student, I had been a pharmacy, a student pharmacy technician which required you to get a certification. And when we moved back, I didn't have, um, we didn't have employment, but we both knew we wanted to live in um, Iowa City. That's where our friends were. And it's close to her her family. She's from Buke originally. So I always knew that I wanted to work at the university. so, uh, I got a job as a custodian um, at first, and I cleaned patient rooms in internal medicine. And then uh, eventually became a pharmacy technician. For the last two years, I have worked in investigational drug service.
0: Uh, what is the investigational drug service?
1: What is it? Yeah. Or what was uh, okay, so it's, it's the pharmacy that handles all of the research, the clinical research trial medications. So um, if you are running a medical trial for a experimental cancer drug, we are the pharmacy that stores the drug, that orders the drug, dispenses the drug, keeps track of
0: drug returns, um, that sort of thing. It's a lot of data management and, um, meticulous record keeping. What, uh, w- were, were they involved in the vaccine testing?
1: Yes, they did the Pfizer. I was actually on the delegation log for the Pfizer vaccine trial rollout. Um, I left before it began. Um, uh, They also did the AstraZeneca. I don't know if they ever enrolled for that. They're currently doing a Novavax one, and I'm trying to get in it, but I don't think I'll qualify. So, yeah, um, and we were remdesivir and hydroxychloroquine. (laughs)
0: Uh, yeah that that wonderful drug uh hydroxy what's it called um so you guys actually like uh tried out rem i can never say this word it it killed me Remdesivir. remdesivir like you were like one of the first places that was trying that out or testing it
1: yes yeah um that one was uh i'm trying to remember when we first started getting patients, and I have a little timeline. So in Iowa for a very long time we had our first cases were here in Iowa City and they were related to a cruise ship that um, some local people had gone on and they came back and tested positive. And that was in March 8th so the first <clears throat> patients that we first got was one One of them was from that cruise ship um, they didn't receive remdesivir because the trial hadn't begun yet and then the meatpacking outbreaks happened and then we started it we started the trial.
0: Can you can you talk about the meatpacking outbreaks? Like that must have been a big event, right? A big wave of of of, of people and issues. Like how how did that unfold? So for me,
1: uh, we were very understaffed. Anyway, they started the, the um, canceling non elective uh, surgeries and in first you know non essential in-person uh appointments early on with research what they did was they said that no non-essential research should continue but what they put on as a caveat was that each individual doctor who runs the trial called a pi the private investigator or the primary investigator excuse me i always say private it's the primary investigator they got to decide whether or not their research was essential and if you're in academics do you know anybody who is doing non-essential research in their own mind
0: <laughs> that's, a, that's right. a very good point <laughs>
1: so our work didn't change at all our work ramped up and became much harder um, in terms of we had fewer resources we had to mail things. The other thing that happens in IDS is the drug companies send representatives to check your data and to like physically count your drug and make sure that it's being stored correctly and all of those things.
0: Like auditing. uh,
1: Yes. Yeah. And those folks come from everywhere, anywhere. You have no idea. The day before they may have been in new york or washington or you know and then you me as the technician would meet with them go back into a small back room and count tablets and stuff together to make sure they you know what we had written down what was was actually what we had so i'm in close contact with people who are flying in from all over
0: the place I think that I think that this is really important for people to know because a lot of uh, a lot of Americans are skeptical about taking a vaccine they 're not sure whether it's been tested properly or um, what the uh, effects of it might be and um, you know, they want to know that this was done the right way. And I mean, I just like, when you talk about five people managing this huge number of people who are in the trial, like that, how many people were in the trial? Uh, well, I, the
1: goal was to enroll 30,000. Yeah. So 15,000 of those more or less, depending on however their logarithm works. Um, won't receive anything from us so we don't have to do anything with those folks they'll they'll get placebo right and we might have had to dry up saline for them like I said I left before it before it began so we may have had to draw up saline but that wouldn't have really caused an issue I mean it would have been more stuff but it wouldn't it wouldn't have been anything new it's not like 30,000 people show up in one day you'll have six patients a day that you need to prepare this vaccine for so you enter in um some information for uh a subject uh the computer or the website will spit back out at you the unblinded person whether or not the person is going to get actual vaccine or they're going to get placebo um and then you draw it up and give it to the nurse
0: Do you, I mean, do you feel like five people is enough to handle this job? (laughs) It
1: was, we were understaffed way before any of this began.
0: Way understaffed. You were understaffed when things were semi-normal and then you're understaffed when the biggest crisis of our lifetimes is happening. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Can you just talk about your experiences working at the University of Iowa? Like, um what what was that like?
1: Um, up until this year it was amazing I mean and this year was amazing in the sense it's big jumbly bureaucracy and it has all the problems that come with that um, it reminded me you know very much of my ship in the Navy except I got to go home every night Instead of sleeping there, um, so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of brilliant people who work there as well. Um, the woman who runs IDS is uh, is uh, past retirement age. She's I I don't know her exact age, but uh, she started IDS because it was a thing the university didn't really want to do at the time forty years ago. So they took like one of the two or three women pharmacists and told them they had to be in charge of it <laughs> and she ran it for she's still running it um they should name it after her. and she's an, just an incredibly brilliant nice person and um the reason i applied for the job because i knew there was no additional pay or benefits uh, to doing it um was her I just I wanted to work for her. Um, I knew her because IBS used to be located at the same on the same floor that I cleaned as a janitor, so I cleaned her pharmacy.
0: And then, then you were working there as a pharmacy tech, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. And uh, just learning from her, you know, forty years of experience uh, running drug, t- you know, running drug trials. You know it was it was amazing because we would have these meetings um, that were supposed to last an hour and she could cut them to 15 minutes because you, you know you don't have to explain to us how this works we know how it works or whatever or your study's garbage you need to go back to your bosses and fix it
0: you know what 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 were the everyday like aspects of your job like what what did you do most of the time
1: Most of the time, um, I'm filling prescriptions. So in the morning, uh, it would come in. I come in about 8, and um, probably over 50% of our drug trials are cancer trials. So it would be preparing um, injections for for chemotherapy or gene therapy or whatever sort of uh, experimental therapy. Was going on for the cancer research but um the, the hardest part about it is not the actual prepping prepping and doing all of that it's actually the paperwork that goes along with it which is documenting everything making sure that um you're grabbing you're getting the correct drug to the correct patient Did for you? the correct trial
0: did you did you interact with the patients much, or was this purely sort of like uh, the like the back end, like handling the paperwork and processing things? Mostly back
1: end. Uh, there were a few patients who would pick up directly at the window. Um, there's, you know, there's a few. There's not very many, but there's a few experimental c- cancer medications that are oral tablets something along those lines where they would pick up. And, uh, so yeah, you have to, you have to interact with the patients a little bit. That was the biggest part that I missed actually was, was, uh, not interacting with patients as much.
0: Right. I mean, so, I mean, that, 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 that ability to serve people seems to be really important to you. Um, what happened, what happened in your job? I mean, if you're comfortable talking about it, um, why? Why did you have to leave?
1: Like I said, my wife is the uh, she's the administrative coordinator for the Department of Pathology, which, like, an old non PC. She's the secretary for the head of pathology.
0: Okay, right. Okay, I get it.
1: <laughs> in February, we knew that the um, CDC tests were garbage. And the Department of Pathology knew that the CDC tests were garbage. Our governor was saying that there was no community spread in Iowa. Um, So I knew that uh, we had no idea what was happening in Iowa because we had no tests because the the Department of Pathology was scrambling to devise its own test before we even had FDA approval to do it because we knew we would have to it as soon as they said we could. So February 29th, I think, February 29th, CDC says we can make our own tests. March 25th, we finally rolled out our own PCR tests, and that was for patients and uh, symptomatic employees only, uh, just because of lab capacity.
0: You said that was in March?
1: Yeah, March 25th
0: this stuff is all public publicly available knowledge. Well, Um, I mean, thank you, but like, I, I want to make sure I keep track of all the particular details. Um, that's March 25th is when they started a PCR test for the healthcare workers and the patients who qualified. So if you were coming in for a necessary surgery, they would test you. Okay.
1: Um, if you, if you had symptoms as an employee, they would test you. Um, there was a there was a whole screening process. Yeah, they started setting up screening process at the door, which was, hey, do you got a new cough? Do you have a fever? Blah blah blah. Bye, and that was it. So, three years ago, my wife had LCH, which is a rare form of uh, leukemia, multi multi systemic LCH so it's a form of leukemia it uh, presents in different organs it's incredibly rare it presented in her lots of different organs but in her lungs um, oh God. as well so we did a year of chemo um, everything got cleared up she's still clear as far as that goes but uh, I think the day the day they said all classes were going online, she stopped going into work. And that was in March as well. Yeah. So at that at that time, we were being told that asymptomatic people did not transmit the virus, which is not true. And it wasn't true even according to the CDC at the time, I know, because we argued about this in the pharmacy over and over again. And I would look at the CDC guidelines, and I would say asymptomatic people that appear to shed some virus. This is not the primary way in which the virus is spread, which does not mean that it does not spread that way. It just means it's not the primary way. And what does shedding mean? And Mm -hmm. shedding means they breathe and sneeze and wipe their eyeballs and all that other stuff. Then on March 12th, my coworker, my fellow technician, who um, does things like watch Joe Rogan, told me about the Joe Rogan show where he had Michael Osterholm on to talk about the coronavirus. And Michael Osterholm is the head of CIDRAP, University of Minnesota. And it's a like basically a pandemic preparedness think tank kind of thing. He's now on Joe Biden's coronavirus task force because what he said on that March 12th interview was, yeah, so I checked him out because I never watched Joe Rogan. I don't like Joe Rogan. That's the only Joe Rogan episode I ever heard. But uh, he said that it was uh, aerosolized, that asymptomatic people were obviously spreading it. So at that point, when I would come home from work, Heather's no longer going to work. Um, She uh, got permission to work from home eventually. For a while, she had to just call in. Uh, I was uh, socially isolating from her. So we have like a big porch. I would come home, strip off all my clothes, head uh, to the shower, and then um, we would hang out. A couple of hours on the porch because it was outside, and then I would I was sleeping in the basement, and she was sleeping upstairs, and then we would just try to avoid each other, which wasn't too hard. Um, well, it was it was hard emotionally. It wasn't too hard physically to do all those things. We have a we have a big house. It's got two bathrooms, and so we could actually do that. Um,
0: can can you can you describe what it was like to go to work? in march or april of 2020 like what was what was going through your head what was your day like when you had to actually go in and you knew that you knew that things were bad awful
1: um i was uh mostly extremely angry
0: all the time why Um, why why were you angry Who was the university leadership? It's, it's robbing Peter to pay Paul
1: yeah exactly but at a certain point when the governor had declared that there was community spread in Iowa we were told that if you caught the coronavirus you caught it in the community not at work and if one of your coworkers had been had tested positive you would not be told because of HIPAA which is not how HIPAA works and not how contact tracing works. Yeah. <laughs> it became really clear to me that in terms of um, in terms of our safety that
0: we were on our own. Right. On your own. Just cut loose, cut adrift, like you guys figure it out. We don't care. You're
1: right. No, no. It, I mean, they wouldn't say it like that. And that was part of the maddening thing. They would say we care very much. But the there's just so much community spread that you could have gotten it literally anywhere. And, you know, and like I said, at the same time, I'm having drug monitors fly in from O'Hare and it's to talk to me in a back room while we count pills together, you know. But no mask because nobody can wear a mask because there's a shortage oh my god so for a while you know and this is about the time that things are going bad in New York like real bad yeah and uh, I came to work and I would um, I have had to stop riding the bus at that point so I was walking it's a mile and a half it's not bad it's it's probably good for me Right. but I would be in tears by the time I got to work. Like, I had a friend who who was a custodian that I knew from before who got angry at the screening process because at this point, anyone with half a brain knows that the screening process is garbage because the screening process just asks you if you if you have symptoms, okay. and then and you have to do this every day. And there's only like three points of entry to the hospital, which is enormous and. Anyway, uh, it, was, it was an additional frustration um, to everything else that was going on. So people would yell at the screeners um, who were fellow employees or whatever too. But sometimes this guy said like he threatened him in some way or another and was fired. Um, like I was angry Enough that uh, something like that could
0: happen to me. I mean, I had tense words with screeners. Yeah. For no reason, they're just fellow
1: workers doing what they're supposed to do.
0: I mean, everybody's on edge, right? Like, so, like, what were those months? I mean, what what were those months in the summer like? Because you kind of had the beginning of the pandemic when people were really concerned about it, and then people kind of stopped being concerned about it, and then it got worse, yeah. and people were concerned about it again. And then they kind of stopped being worried about it, and then they began. Like, what was it like over the summer?
1: Tyson, on May fifth, my mom she still lives in Columbus Junction. Uh, I don't remember the exact date she sent me the text message, but I hadn't really been paying attention. But because of, I told you what my day was like. It was work, talk, sleep. Right. Um, I thought everything was shut down in Iowa, like, that we were doing, we were doing that, everything in Iowa City was, for the most part, and then my mom sent me a text message, someone at Tyson has tested positive, and I thought, because I had worked there for a summer, yeah. my senior year, and I just thought, if Tyson is open, then everybody in there has it. Because you can't
0: call in. They'll fire you. I feel like, Um, I, I, I mean, like, of all the things that Donald Trump did when he was president, which were a lot of things, like, a lot of things that I find completely horrifying, the one thing that I find the most ghoulish and the most, like, cruel and insidious is him, like, basically doing an injunction that meatpacking workers have to go back to work. It's like, we are going to kill you. We are going to force you into a concentration camp, basically. Like, that's just, like, how else do you describe it? And it just is like, because people need to have bacon. Um, Donald Trump is going to frog march a bunch of Mexican immigrants and to cough on each other so they get COVID and fucking die. I just – it's the most inhuman thing that – honestly, I i think he – it's the most inhuman thing I think he did in a way. Um, but that's just my opinion.
1: And they were never in any danger of running out of food. I They're called warehouses. I know. They're enormous.
0: <laughs> it's almost more like a symbolic – it's more like symbolic. Like I am in charge and I'm telling you to do this thing. It's not about like actually like is there enough bacon? <laughs> like – no, yeah. No. Uh,
1: so May 5th, uh, the Iowa Health Department says 221 employees from the tyson in Junction have tested positive for COVID.
0: On July 22nd, we found out that that was a lie because it
1: was actually 522. But that's when I that's when we started seeing, we started seeing COVID patients, um, because we're the closest hospital to junction. Uh, and that's when we started doing remdesivir. Yeah. We started the remdesivir trial and, um, <clears throat> it was unblinded. So everybody gets it. Yay. But that's when, um, The scripts would come in, and it would say moderate or severe. Severe meant mechanically ventilated. And us five in the pharmacy quickly figured out that mechanically ventilated meant you weren't going home. You
0: were
1: not going to make it. Uh, So that's when I rewrote my advanced directives to include that fact in case I got it. Um, and these people from my hometown that's
0: kind of, yeah, just fucking murdered them do you want to take a, a little break? yeah yeah, I mean uh, we can just chill for a minute and then we okay. can start talking again maybe in like five minutes okay, sounds I, good is that, does that sound like a okay yeah okay great awesome thank you so 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 what happened with your job at university of iowa like how how did things end up going bad
1: for 77 of the counties. And uh, so that meant bars, restaurants, whatever, anything can be open. Um, There were some fake restrictions in place, like 50% capacity. Um, There's never been a mask mandate in Iowa. Like I said, we were doing the opposite of testing and tracing at the university, so I know the state wasn't doing it. Um, It was around May 20th, all of this is... Building to, on May 20th, I was walking home and it had snowed that day. And instead of walking home, I walked to the ER because I was afraid I was going to jump off the Iowa Bridge. There's a <clears throat> bridge that you cross that divides the town, um, it goes over the Iowa River. It's kind of a popular place to jump off of,
0: and that was um, on it, that. And that was on your way home. Yeah. So instead of uh, walking home,
1: I went to the ER. Spent several hours there. Finally convinced the doc there that I wasn't. I I just needed to go home. I was not going to stay in the hospital um, for fear. Of contracting COVID. So my wife came pick me up. I started the process of getting FMLA paperwork done so that I could take medical leave. I went to work the next day kept working until June third. my FMLA paperwork was approved. And then I just kept getting extensions on that from my psychiatrist Um, i applied for long-term disability insurance through the university benefits office and got approved for that at which point um this was in october so at that point you basically you you either they they let you go for medical per- for medical reasons, or you come back to work, I guess, because you're better or whatever. Those are kind of your options. I was out of FMLA leave and out of regular leave, <clears throat> so I was discharged October 31st
0: for medical reasons. So you weren't like fired,
1: right? Uh, yeah, no, I wasn't. No, I guess <laughs> I don't work there anymore. I do. Um, <laughs> I get, I get uh, 60% of my, my pay through long-term disability. My wife still works there, she still works remotely, uh, so I get my health insurance from her. Our house is uh, on a VA loan, so through the CARES Act I can defer payments
0: for a year. That's great. Yeah, and in many ways we're really, really lucky. I mean, I guess, like, what would you want people to know based on your experience working in this um, medical setting, this university setting, um, in the context of COVID and testing of vaccines? What would you want people to know uh, if they were listening to this? Like, what what kind of takeaway would you want people to have?
1: Well, so uh, as a a veteran. I uh, have PTSD from things that happened to me in childhood. I've been in therapy for many years trying to process that trauma. Uh, What people don't know because it's happening to them right now is they're being traumatized every day. Right. And they're not processing it. So I don't know how that's going to express itself
0: in the future, but it's probably not going to be in a healthy way. Right. Um, Right. I've, I've thought about that a lot. Like I've thought about, you know, like my great, great grandfather was in World War I and he came back and he was traumatized. I mean, they didn't have a word for PST PTSD back then, but he was traumatized. He was an alcoholic. He was abusive. He was violent and cruel. Um, He beat my great-grandmother and then my great-grandmother hurt my grandmother because she had grown up with that. Then my grandmother hurt us um, because it just was uh, reverberating through the generations. And I really wonder how people are going to process this really abnormal, hard, weird thing that we're going through. Um, Those of us who have an income and it's comfortable enough, like that's, it's still kind of bad, but like, I really wonder what, I really, really seriously wonder what the long-term ramifications of this are going to be.
1: Yeah. um, I think, uh, I think if any, uh, yeah, if there's any takeaway, it's, it's that um, this is the first first pandemic we're going to have to deal with. The next one's going to be a yeah. psychological one. Yeah. And I don't know that we're going to recognize it. I don't know that we have the wherewithal to deal with it. Um, and that's more of what frightens me than anything else.
0: Yeah, I mean, like if if you have a, if you have a, a an illness, you can take an antibiotic and it solves it. But like this kind of thing doesn't get solved that easily. Yeah, um,
1: and it's just like if if you have half of a brain, you can see that this is that we just did this to, for money. But we people have got to make money. So Arby's has got to be open. Yeah. My God, what if Arby's was shut down for a month?
0: I am was... actually like a huge fan of Arby's. So like, I'm, like I feel I feel I feel very like you know attacked right now. But um... <laughs> <laughs> I used
1: to love Arby's too,
0: but then we do not have one in Iowa City anymore. At least I
1: have a barbecue sandwich. It was a dollar back in the nineties.
0: So as we're wrapping up here, um, it, it seems like something I've heard in your talking about your military service and your work as a pharmacy tech and other things that you've done, that this um, idea of, of, of public service or uh, maybe sacrificing for other people um, is something that seems like it's, really, it's been really important to you. So like, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that
1: yeah um i find you know um there's there are some amazing people in healthcare, like really amazing there's some terrible people too it's like taking the best people that you have and sacrificing them for for no reason
0: i guess the question is like why do you feel guilty about leaving them or leaving your 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 um Shipmates in the navy like why is that such a um a sense of obligation that really matters to you like why why do you think that is?
1: Yeah, watch, watch Seinfeld reruns, and that's when, um, like that kind of uh, meaningless life or whatever, catches up to me, and uh, it, it causes depression in me. So it's in a way, it's a selfish thing. Like I have to be doing something. That I feel like I'm helping other people, even if it's, yeah, being a janitor at the hospital, and I. I, I think I discovered that pretty early on in my 20s. Um, I just uh, found that, that having a rewarding life meant doing something for someone else.
0: I think that um, I can't remember what part of our conversation it was. I'm I'm losing it a little bit, but you talked about one of the positions that you had along the way as like it's not hurting anyone it at the very minimum it's not hurting anyone like it's it might be helping people but at the very minimum i took a job in the navy or i um was a custodian in a hospital or i was a pharmacy tech like the one thing i could say is that my job is not hurting anyone it might not accomplish that much maybe it does but like i can be happy that like my job is not hurting people and the way that like, if you work for a big corporation, you're kind of like doing, you're doing the bidding of the evil corporation. Right? (laughs) Was that something that was important to you? Yeah.
1: Um, Trying to think of, I worked before I got a job at the university, I was a temp worker at a sort of fly by night manufacturing place that Basically, just boxed goods for uh, Procter and Gamble. So it's just like a—I don't know—a generic factory job for the shampoo corporation. (laughs) 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 And uh, the working conditions were terrible. And um, you know, almost everyone was an immigrant. And it's not that it was—it was hard. It was just like it was—it was so pointless. And maddening. Um, I can't imagine doing that for an extended period of time. I mean, I was doing it to pay the rent. Um, right. So, I, you know, after the Navy, I kind of dropped out of society for a while. Um, you know, I worked on that organic farm. And so then when I got married, and I, it's like, I'm okay, so I'm going to going to re-enter this game or whatever (laughs) um so I had you know what I did to make money had to have meaning for me
0: right right. otherwise I I couldn't do it yeah I mean I I feel like everybody is looking for meaning in their life and they might be like an insurance claims adjuster for um you know um what's that farm office what's the insurance company uh, farm? home farm uh nations oh. farm what is it uh there's state farm state farm that's the one so maybe yeah. you're maybe you're an insurance claims adjuster for state farm which you know they do need insurance claims adjusters to like tell whether like somebody's insurance claim is legit or not or whether they're lying like You know, it it does does have to happen, but it doesn't necessarily make you feel that great about um, what you're doing with your life. Um, Right. So I don't know. Um, Having thought about all that, like, um, what 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 do you see going forward? Like with this ethos of like public service and like um, contributing to society, like, what do you see going forward?
1: I I probably will. Try to go back into um, go back into Madison in some some form or another. Um, there's a small pharmacy down the street that's a compounding pharmacy, which I actually like, kind of enjoy. It's like cooking with drugs, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a little more technical, and um, they pay well, and uh, they offered me a job sort of job well, I had a zip recruiter uh, profile and they already offered me a job. Um, I just didn't take it because I'm, I'm on the stay home. <laughs> um, but I, I would do, I might go do something like that. I don't think I'll ever work for the university again. Um, this year it's just I don't trust them at all. and um, I don't think it's gonna get better here in Iowa for a while.
0: So, yeah, I mean, that's where we are at. Um, I want to thank you so much, Um, you know, Scott Clark has been with us on this episode, um, talking about his experiences, um, you know, working in the U.S. military and also in the healthcare industry in Iowa um, and had a lot of really uh, great insights into what, you know, what what we're doing here or or, or what we're not doing. Um, That's... That's the thing that's on everybody's minds right now. So um, I thank you so much, Scott, for like taking your time to like talk about this.
1: Yeah, and thank you. Thank you for talking to me.
0: So that was our conversation with Scott Clark. Uh, I really appreciate the time that he spent uh, to tell a story and really opening up about some difficult things. But this is a window into a world that we need to know We're still in the midst, at the time of this recording, of um, the pandemic. And we don't know whether we're closer to the beginning or the end. Hopefully the end. It's been hard on everyone. Uh, If there's somebody out there who it's not been difficult for, we'd love to hear from you. Actually, (laughs) what what we would like is to hear from anybody about their experiences um, with care. During this crisis or at any other time. Um, in the home, in the workplace, at your church or mosque or temple or synagogue. Uh, maybe you're game, your Dungeon Master. Really, this is a big picture. So really, share these stories. If you want to be in touch and have a conversation, uh, you can contact us at thetactileworld at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Tender Pony. And other sound edits and interstitials are by Patel Brothers Bingo. This is a uh, production of New Romantic Robots and Tropics in Meadow. Thank you. Have a good day.